Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today, I have as my guest, Brian Penders, Chief Information Security Officer of the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I had the pleasure of meeting Brian at a cybersecurity conference hosted by UNC's Worldview program, and I really enjoyed his presentation. So I felt that all of you would enjoy hearing what Brian has to share by way of his experiences and perspectives in cybersecurity. While I was learning about Brian the professional, I was super intrigued by his background. He has a very interesting journey that began in law enforcement. In fact, it began in the U.S. Nuclear Navy. And today, he is a senior information security governance officer, a leader. It's a fascinating story, a story that he needs to share himself, not me, on his behalf. But bottom line, it's a great honor and a privilege to have Brian on the show today. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invite. And, and yes, it was it was great meeting you at the conference and having lunch uh, and getting to know each other. It really was. So, Brian, as I just mentioned in my intro, um, you have a very interesting professional background. You worked as a lab technician in the U.S. Navy nuclear submarine for six years. Then you were a law enforcement officer for 15 years before transitioning to incident response and digital forensics. And now you are the chief information security officer at UNC's School of Medicine. Wow, what a journey. Take us behind the scenes and share with us some highlights. What were the drivers? What were the motivators? What can listeners take away from your experience? Yes, happy to do so. I know you know many people in the cybersecurity field as I do, I've been amazed at the different backgrounds of these professionals, particularly security leaders. I'm not sure if it's true in other fields, but vast differences. No two are the same. And I, you know, I love reading about, about background of these folks. And mine was, like many people in this field, I didn't think about getting into cybersecurity way back. It was something where um, I wanted to I, when I was in college, I, I took liberal arts and, and humanities courses, and I was interested in science. But I more read about science on my own. I, you know, didn't really do well in science courses at, in, in universities because it seemed a bit more a bit abstract to me. And so, 
after college, my father and my uh, few uncles were veterans. So that influenced me. And so I went into this program, I did some research, and I wanted to do some traveling and really get into something that was challenging academically and to serve, serve my country. And so I looked into this program and went into the six year tour uh, for this naval nuclear propulsion. The first two years is in schools, engineering schools, very challenging curriculums, and then went to my duty station, which was a fast attack submarine out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Wow. Very difficult duty. Yeah. A, a gorgeous place to live, no doubt, but very difficult duty. Was at sea quite a bit and the work-life balance was tough. That's why I can't really recommend this path, I should say, because some of these positions were very tough on, on the home life, as you can understand. So after the military, I had an interest in law enforcement and you know, people were scratching their heads. Why didn't you use this training? Why didn't you get into civilian nuclear power? And you know, I didn't really have an interest. And for me, and we can, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more later, for me, it was about the Navy taught me how to learn. And that was more valuable to me at the time than anything I learned about nuclear engineering. And so that's really threaded through a lot of this journey. And so I went and applied for and got a position with the Vermont State Police after that. And um, like like most, like every other person, you do patrol work for several years. And then I did some executive protection with the governor's security unit. And then I started to get the itch for technology and something a little more intense and some training. And at first I looked at uh, a polygraph examiner position because that had significant training and was pretty complex and difficult job. That didn't work out. And then a computer crimes unit position opened up, a very small unit. And keep in mind, this is in 2007, which is when the iPhone came out. So this is when everybody had computers at home. Everybody's got cell phones with them. And as you can imagine, every crime just about had a, had a digital component to it. A huge demand for, for expertise in this area. So I was fortunate, and you and I talked about this school last time we spoke, to be able to go to this amazing facility down in Hoover, Alabama. It's called the National Computer Forensics Institute, NCFI. It's literally for state and local law enforcement to learn digital forensics and, and prosecutors. It's run by the Department of Homeland Security. The first course, I was there for a total of 11 weeks. The first course is five weeks where you learn from the ground up about how computers work, how networks operate, and then you get into forensic software and doing forensic exams and writing reports. And then the, the great thing about it is you go back to your department with the equipment and the software to get going from day one. And so anyway, those first few years were were, the, I can't say enough about how steep the learning curve was. And my biggest takeaway from this position that I brought to North Carolina was there's nothing more terrifying preparing for a trial where the stakes are high. These are, many of our victims were children, heinous crimes. You, know, you need to get this right. And so it was a lot of you know checking and double checking and reaching out to anybody I could to make sure I got this right. I needed to be able to present data to an older jury because you know think keeping in mind Vermont is an older state juries are older a lot of them were not familiar with technology and then also be technical enough so that the defense examiner the defense attorney who also has a defense forensic examiner you can survive that cross-examination so it was really a way to not only learn the material but how do I document it how do I present this to different audiences that was a 
a really great takeaway for me when I moved on from Vermont to down here in North Carolina. We had we had wanted to move south for a couple of years, and I wanted to stay in the field, but I didn't. But the work cases were pretty heavy and stressful, and so I, my wife had always worked in higher education. So I had an interest in in trying to work uh, at a university. And this worked out at Chapel Hill. Like you said, I came down into a digital forensics incident response team lead role. And I really found a home here in IT. There's, you know, I was, you know, one flight of stairs away from experts in storage and servers and email, Splunk, pretty much everything. And incident response is a really great way to learn an environment and build partnerships across an organization. And then after five years there, this position opened up in School of Medicine uh, where I could do security more across across the board. And uh, it's been great. I've been here almost four years. So that's kind of the, the journey in a nutshell. Fascinating. Thank you for your service. I have many former students who have been in the nuclear Navy vessels, and I've heard a lots of stories. So hats off to you guys. I believe the training, the expectations are quite steep and it really gets everything out of you. So, so yes, uh, you know, we all have our journeys. They're almost meant to be and we learn. So this is fabulous that I'm able to talk to you. The U.S. Nuclear Navy Propulsion Program, which Admiral Hyman Rickover launched, uh, he's considered the founding father. There was an article written about the culture that he established, which enabled the program to avoid catastrophic losses for a long period of time. And this culture that Admiral Recover established is characterized by five or six principles, such as integrity, depth of knowledge, procedural compliance, forceful backup, questioning attitude, and formality in communications. So when I was reading this article about the culture that he had established, and I was learning about these principles, it dawned on me that why don't we apply those principles in the private sector, in the context of cybersecurity governance, and try to execute them as best as we can, as they did, or as they do in the nuclear Navy world. And we in the private sector will do a lot better. So that was almost the start of my journey into cybersecurity research. And in fact, the, that framework helped me develop my cybersecurity holistic governance framework, which is in my book. So I'm so glad that you are here, uh, Brian, to talk to us about your variety of experiences. But let me first focus on that high reliability organizational culture that was established in the U.S. nuclear Navy. And you have lived in that culture. Share a bit about what it is like and what could be some takeaways that are relatable or applicable in the world of cybersecurity governance. Yes, I'll be honest. Um, I had not really thought about tying these principles to my current role until we spoke about this. And, and you're right. These First of all, it's probably the least talked about success story, as you know. This uh, the nuclear propulsion program that was that began with Admiral Rickover, and we're talking about this is now forty years after he retired, and this program is still going strong, as you said, accident free. 
it's really incredible. But you're right. These principles pr- could probably apply to many industries, but they certainly can for this field. And I would like to touch on a couple things that were a part of Admiral Rickover's principles and and that I saw in my experience there that I've that have st- stayed with me. Um, one of them is depth of knowledge. That is one thing that I mentioned. The Navy taught me how to learn the way that Admiral Rickover thought through individuals gaining technical knowledge was really amazing. It was it was based on if you could not draw and explain something to a group of experts sufficiently, then you were not going to move forward. And this is everything from the micro to the macro. This is this could be draw and explain a particular valve and up to a system and then how systems work together or an evolution like an engine room startup. Talk us through that. And that stays the same, not just in the two years of school, but when you get to your duty station, you really are just beginning your training. It doesn't end. In fact, I think I thought through all of the oral boards that I went through before I was fully qualified as a essentially a junior person in the engineering department, and it was around 10. Those were formal ones. That is something that I think he doesn't want. He wanted you to move away from memorization to understanding. Once you understand, there was no need to memorize. That was a big one. The other was his focus generally just on people. I think he was the first military person to, well, this is post-World War II, so he's trying to move away from the brawny warrior type to the a thoughtful engineer type. I don't think anyone had done that before. And how rank actually took a backseat to knowledge. Uh, many people may not know this. When you stand a watch on a submarine, you may outrank administratively people on that watch. And it seemed to work. When you got off watch, you were back in your administrative rank. You didn't have as many privileges as that person. But on watch, if if you proved your superior knowledge, you qualified that watch station, you were over them operationally. So that was that's fascinating. And then Lastly, one, another thing he talked about was a preoccupation with failure, thinking about failure. And this is where in cybersecurity, you get to this idea of assume breach and really zero trust is based on having a failure already. So, and then, you know, he, he stressed people before the idea of people processing technology, which we know today is very important in that order. And he really uh, stressed that early on. Sure, sure. I'd like to share something that was shared by one of my former students. And he said, uh, Dr. Chatterjee, in the nuclear Navy vessel, when we were given a command to do something, we were required to repeat the command verbatim before we executed it. And he said, it kind of felt really odd. We felt like we are really dumb people, as if we don't follow. But you realized how much importance and emphasis was given to communication accuracy, communication integrity. And that stayed with me as well. When you talk about cybersecurity governance, and you know it better than anybody else because you do it for a living, a lot of it is communication, but effective communication. And one of the hallmarks of effective communication is when if you are communicating something, there has to be a mechanism whereby you know that your communication is being received appropriately. And how do you do that? So that was one way of doing it. Just just tell me what I told you. And now that you've told me what I've told you, and I 
believe you get it. Now go ahead and execute it. I think that's fabulous. I, I agree with 100%. <laughs> it takes out of the equation one error that could be costly for sure. Yeah, exactly. Let's switch gears a little bit. You are managing the security environment in a medical school at a large institution, a very reputed medical school. That's quite the responsibility. I've had CISOs on my podcast who've talked about the various challenges that academic institutions face, and they have shared solutions, best practices. There are many units within an academic institution, and you focus on a particular unit, the medical school. Are there any unique challenges that a medical school faces compared to the other units? And if so, how do you go about dealing with them? Yes, there are. And there's a couple I'd like to talk about. One is really true for all health affairs schools. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about. And it has to do with something simple, that there are high earners in health affairs. And what this means is we're targeted for a lot of these, what I'll call money grab type scams and attacks. So specifically, years ago, there was a a phishing campaign around stealing W-2s and for tax fraud purposes. And a large percentage of those accounts were from the School of Medicine. Other attacks involving social engineering to get into retirement accounts, we get I think we get a large portion of the tech support scams, which really try to get a credit card number, get a credit card number from a doctor. It's different from others. And also just credentials. Our medical email credentials are more valuable, frankly, on the dark web to sell. So that's something that we talk to right from when students get here all the way through is be careful. You may be caught up in this. And honestly, those are really have really been the root cause for our incidents that involve regulated data, PHI, because there really isn't an interest in the PHI, but because these attacks happen, there may be an email, an exposure of email that contains regulated data. So it's a real headache. It's very risky for us. So we we try to talk to our users, our faculty, staff, and students about that. The second big category is really around governance risk. There's If you can imagine the Venn diagram, the School of Medicine is one of the HIPAA cover components of the university, but we are also tied to UNC Health, our partners there. And that's by statute, the dean of the School of Medicine is also the CEO of UNC Health. We are separate legal organizations, but we share our clinical faculty. You're a faculty member as well, Dr. Chatterjee, so you know as a faculty member, you want to be available to people. You you want your work to be known. You want people to be able to get in touch with you. And, and it's particularly easy in that regard because we're a public university. And when you add the fact that these are also our clinicians who are working with regulated data, they're doing research that involves health information. It's very challenging when you get that mix together. It takes a lot of communication with our faculty to understand the differences and to be able to work with our partners in UNC Health to make sure that there aren't any gaps there that could expose data. So those are the two the two big differences here in School of Medicine. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I'll take this opportunity to share with the listeners some common cybersecurity challenges that plague educational institutions. I talked about these in my talk at UNC where I met Brian. One of the challenges is dealing with legacy systems. Numerous remote endpoint devices is another challenge. Securing students. 
student body, lack of incident response plans, no budget line item for cybersecurity. That, that's more true for the community colleges. Difficulty keeping up with emerging threats. And finally, the ability to hire and retain staff because cybersecurity jobs can be exciting, but they can also cause burnouts. So there, there can be a high turnover. You emphasized incident response plans. And research finds that in general, organizations don't do a very good job of rehearsing their incident response plans. Sometimes they don't even have a good plan in place. And I'm not going to ask you to speak specifically to your organization, but generically, Brian, as a practitioner, what's feasible and what's ideal? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and you're right. These things can slip away as everyone gets busy, but but they're very important. I think the trick is to not think you have to go to the nth degree with these. You know, Ideally, we would have something that involved the entire university, UNC Health School of Medicine, and we would get, all get together. You don't have to go right there. You could just do something as simple as when you actually have an incident, you can actually use that as an example of checking it against your plans. And when we work with third parties, that's their recommendation to you know take advantage when things come in to run through your plan. And then honestly, working with third parties to help with tabletops and reviewing incident response plans, I think is is a great way to go. They you know they can provide some great expertise. They can sort of sit from the outside and tell you what how you're doing and and the direction you need to go. Okay, good to know. Ransomware attacks are a threat to all organizations. Academic institutions are no exception. In fact, they are being hit very heavily. So is it fair to assume that institutions engage in rehearsing how to uh, recover from a ransomware attack? Yes, I think it's done under the umbrella of disaster recovery generally, which isn't really specific to ransomware. You Usually your infrastructure teams are in charge of developing your business continuity and disaster recovery plans, and they periodically do test restores of systems that would help with a ransomware incident or after it. Okay. That's good to know as well. So as a faculty member, we get communication from the technology office, the security office from time to time. I don't recollect any communication or guidance where they are proactively preparing us from a ransomware attack that could freeze our systems, compromise our data. So what I'm trying to understand is this rehearsal of proactively or reactively responding to ransomware attacks, is this rehearsal taking place at a certain level and not at all levels? Uh, what would be, I'm just trying to get a better sense from your perspective. Right. It wouldn't be something that would rise to the user level. It could certainly be an attack and certainly start there, but it'd be more about when a ransomware actors are looking at a large organization, they're not as focused on doing a whole lot with individual users' workstations. They're, they're going to use that as possibly an entry point, but it would be taking some time using different malware to move across an organization to get to something that they want. Could be um, domain controllers or it could be bigger servers and storage arrays, something that can really hamper the organization such that a payment would be feasible. It wouldn't be something that a user would really get involved with in terms of testing those programs. So moving on to cybersecurity governance best practices, there are several out there. 
Would you like to highlight a few that you are really big on? Yes. I mean, considering I mentioned we've we've had some incidents with phishing and social engineering, our best practices the last couple of years have focused in those areas in what I'll call a good, better, best type scenario, where in terms of, let's say, passwords, we talk to our users about strong and unique passwords. Now, some of their university accounts are automatically done, but their own accounts. And we focus on things like, think about your primary personal email account and how important that is. You need a strong and unique password and you need multi-factor authentication because that could be the key to all of your other accounts, uh, at least the ones that don't have multi-factor authentication. And beyond that, we say, now look at your finance, banking, retirement, and then look at your social media. And then if you can, make sure you do that for all of them. Use passphrases and a lot of those general password guidance. But lately, because of the nuances of the attacks, especially in terms of multi-factor workarounds, our exact playbooks of guidance don't really work with our users. So we've been talking to them about this idea of having situational awareness in terms of are you already logged in? You are going to. You may get an email. You should look to see if it is an external from an external source, and if there is a link there. And if there is, you should have. You should be very careful about that link. And if you do click the link and you're asked to log in, why would you need to log in? And so we use two different MFA solutions here, but the one we use for Microsoft. They should not have to log in. As you know, when you log in, you get a session token. It should last a while. So you should really think through why you're being asked to put your credentials in here. Because some of the ones we've seen have been this attack where there's a credential turnaround, where attackers take the credentials in real time, log in, and that will generate a push. So the advice to our users to only accept push notifications that they expect doesn't work because they did expect one. So that's when we have had to back up and talk to them about situational awareness. So those are some of the big ones around passwords and MFA. And the other one is updating software. Uh, I'll say if I had 30 seconds with a group, I would tell them to keep their software updated. And what we're talking to our users about is they don't really know a lot about the software release cycles and how the software is likely a combination of security updates and new features. Our users get lulled into thinking that it's only new features and they you know, hit remind me tomorrow and they don't quite understand that the updates are security patches for the previous update. And so, again, it's a good, better, best. We don't expect everyone to stop what they're doing. People are busy, but we say as soon as possible. But if you could, within a couple of weeks, get that new software installed, you're going to have the, the security updates that you need. So those are just a few of the big ones we've been talking about. Absolutely. Makes sense. I'd like to react to a couple of things. When you mentioned multi-factor authentication, Recently, I did an episode on multi-factor authentication fatigue, and that the guest was talking about how developers detest having to authenticate time and again when they're working on 50 different applications that they're having to go back and forth. And then there are human beings who are also at times unwilling to have it, have to authenticate every time they are having to log into a system. I would I will admit that initially I belong to that camp. But I've changed since because I now recognize how important that security feature is. I also wonder about these passwords. You know, we are tired of remembering passwords, tired of trying to save passwords. 
Password protection managers don't work. They get hacked. We hear about them all the time. So there's a huge push towards password-less authentication. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts? I mean, what's the reality around password-less authentication? When I think about the big defenses that have come out around identity, certainly MFA years ago was one. And I think we're on the cusp of another with WebAuthn and using biometrics on your system to prevent this idea of a shared secret, right? We need to get out of the business of the shared secret. And so UNC is moving to offering passwordless authentication this year. We have a strategy to roll it out. And I I think it's going to be well-received and we'll see how it goes. But this is going to be, attackers will pivot. It'll be, they may go back to malware or they may, you know, use malware to to grab session tokens. And so there might be a, a new thing, but this I think is a big new defense to credential theft. Excellent. Wonderful. So Brian, we are kind of coming towards the end of our episode here. I wish we could continue the conversation, but we will have to wrap it up. Uh, so I'd like to give you the opportunity to share some final thoughts with the listeners. Yeah, I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking a little bit about building teams. You and I discussed this a bit last time we talked. Some of the things that we look for in terms of when we're looking at someone from IT who's interested in coming to cybersecurity, we look at service desk experience, system and server administrators, and developers. But it's also important, we have found, in addition to traditional diversity, diversity of background. We have found that our folks from liberal arts and humanities can be extremely valuable to supplement and then sometimes lead our cybersecurity teams. I'm, I'm generalizing, but they're good problem solvers. They're able to see the big picture and they're excellent communicators, all amazing skills. And if they have a propensity and an interest in being technical, that just makes it all the better. And then the other thing is for any folks who are trying to, to get into cybersecurity it can be really hard. It's it's easy for us to say, well, you know, just take an entry level IT job and move from there, but that's not feasible for some people. And so the only advice I have is to bug your IT teams wherever you are. And if you're in IT, bug your security team. I'm I'm surprised more people don't come and talk to us, just knock on our door and say, can you t- tell us what you do? Show me, show me some of the things that you all do. So I know and all my colleagues would welcome would welcome that. So just a few tips for anyone looking to to get into cyber. Fantastic. In fact, I'd like to reiterate what you just said, that even if you are coming from a non-technical background, there is no reason to shy away from a field like cybersecurity because the field could benefit from people bringing in different perspectives, different expertise. And there are numerous instances of people with liberal arts degrees. I had a subject matter expert on another episode. She has a PhD in philosophy phenomenology was was the focus of her dis, of her dissertation she's a real techie she assessed uh, cybersecurity technologies for the government uh, so there's nothing that you can't learn even if you didn't have the traditional technical training or technical foundation it's all a matter of interest and willing to be curious and being willing to adapt so I think there are several other skill sets that come into play. Brian's own journey, where he himself mentions coming from a liberal arts background and how he literally stumbled into these roles and then he grew with them. 
I'm sure he'll be the first person to agree that he didn't envision himself doing what he is doing today when he got out of college with a liberal arts degree. So do keep that in mind for those of you who are aspiring to pursue a career in cybersecurity and you're sitting on the sidelines wondering if that would be a good career move or not. I think it'll be a great career move. More importantly, there is also the opportunity to secure the enterprise, secure the nation. There is the other aspect to this job that makes it very noble. I want to take this opportunity to thank all the cybersecurity professionals out there who do this job and they often are never recognized. They do it behind the scenes. The purpose of podcasts like mine is to try to bring them out of their cubicles and share with the world the realities behind cybersecurity governance and all the great things they do. So, Brian, thank you again for your time. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. A special thanks to Brian Penders for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization. 